Ollantai Tambo. Was this village built by the Inca, or is the site evidence for a much older extraterrestrial civilization? Is Pi the key to unlocking the mysteries of the pyramids in Mexico? Is there tool marks on Egyptian statues at Karnak from machines that will not exist until our days? Let's find out together, but I must warn you, it's almost never aliens. Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens from History Channel to the claims of water to an archaeologist or other better explanations out there. I'm your host Frederick and this is episode 29. This time around we are going to look at feats of engineering. Could some be evidence of extraterrestrial interference? Well, probably not, but let's investigate these locations and the claims surrounding them. I'll start you out in a small village in Peru called Olantaytambo, once part of the Inca Empire. Next, it's time for some math problem with Sukalos in Tenochtitlan and Indian architecture with David Childress. Lastly, we're going to Karnak and Malta to look at a few examples the proponents claims are impossible to create with the tools available at this particular time in history. Remember that you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now, when we finish with our preparations, let's dig down in the episode. Hey, this is Dinah from the 2AM Brains Podcast. Have you ever wondered if science has created a spider goat? Or if Bigfoot is telepathic? Join us every week on 2AM Brains to find out the answers to these questions and so much more. Let's meet these ancient engineers and see what we can find. We start our journey in Peru, some 70 kilometers northwest of Cusco, in a small village named Olantaytambo. Interestingly, this little hamlet is a living ruin. While some changes have been made, especially around the old plaza, the people still live in the old buildings. Old Inca structures are being used until this day, basically. And you can't be blamed for not knowing about this place. While it was once an important location, it's... It's even to this day not really well researched. It's one of these places that archaeologists and others would need to pay a little bit more attention to. But from what I've been able to find in research for this episode, it seems to have started to pick up again. But for a long time, Jean-Pierre Protzen was one of the few people researching this location. And this name might be familiar if you have been listening to this show for some time. Protzen has done a fantastic job on Inca stonework and architecture and paid much deserved attention to location others might not really have, well, given so much love and care to. Now, what we do know about Olantaytambo is that it's been there since, well, before the Inca Empire. And we should remember that the Inca Empire was only around for about 100 years. I think we easily forget this and that they operate around 1400 CE until the Spanish conquest. But the history before Inca in Olantaytambo is a bit unclear and would need more research. Around 1450, the town was raised by Puchkatki Inca Yupkantki, who later would start to rebuild the settlement and incorporate it into his, uh, well, basically pleasure palace. Pachate is the one who set Inca on their way to become an empire, so it's maybe fitting that he restarted this settlement in a sense. 
Olan Taitambo is right in the middle of the Uramba Valley, where the river with the same name flows through. The settlement is located north of the river and on the other side of the riverbed runs one of the four main roads of the Inca Empire. So four roads stretched out across the kingdom from the main square in Cusco. You could say that all roads in Tavantisuyu led to Cusco. And to cross the river, the residents of Ollantaytambo used a bridge from uh, which we can still see the original fundaments today, even. And I, I hear you. What about the aliens? Yeah, yeah, we will get to that. To be honest, this section is um, mainly based on false diachronies, word association and misrepresentation. It does not get further than the first two talking heads before we get some issues. The show wants the site to be, well, much older than it really is. In fact, Brian Forrester, a tour guide and self-proclaimed expert, claims the site is 12,000 years old. While it is plausible, I mean, we have, uh, for example, Monte Verde in Chile dated to 16,000 BP and uh, Picamache Cave dated to around 12,000 BCE. But this really early date that uh, Forrester give here is in no way connected to the structures we see there today. The old date is uh, to be... We also hear from a man called uh, Jesus Gamara, and the show claims he is an anthropologist. Now, Gamara himself never claimed that in any of his bios. Instead, he's focusing more on his idea that there were less gravity in the past. That's how people in our history could uh, so effortlessly build and move large stones. And as you might suspect, the theory the ancient alien proponents have about this site is it's not Incan, but instead from a much, much older unknown civilization. It's not clear why the Inca could not do it since, well, they in the previous episode we saw claimed that they had, you know, stone melting capabilities and all of that. But the whole ancient astronaut idea is, for the most part, built on logical fallacies, as you might have started to realize here. And the same issue other alternative history struggles like Graham Hancock, for example. And let's look what they claim must have been done with alien technology at this site. The show will talk about what they call a fortress. And this was an old contact period idea. What they talk about, in fact, is part of the temple area. Within this section of the town, located uphill from the river, we see something that's usually referred to as Wall of the Six. And these are really large monolithic stones of red granite. The proponents claim that these stones would be impossible to cut, transport, or anything else, as Brian Forster explained to us. These six giant slabs of red granite have stood here for thousands of years because of the beautiful engineering of the ancients. If there is a major earthquake, these shims can ride up and down, absorbing the shock of the earthquake, and that keeps the giant slabs in place. The ability to fit perfectly fitting stones of several tons in weight together so that a single human hair can't fit in between them is not a question of sweat or man hours. It's a question of technology. Now this wall is intriguing for sure and a marvel in a sense. And it differs a lot from the architecture that the Inca used elsewhere. We see these large monolithic boulders and if you look closely you will start to note that they have a bond of narrow fillet stone between them. We don't really see this in other location. Why they decide to change up the architecture here is still being determined but um, that everything else around this structure is quite well understood Inca building techniques and architecture. It's never mentioned within the show but uh, this temple was never finished. In fact it's predominantly an abandoned construction site. In a sense this is the perfect place if you want to figure out how the Inca people made these type of constructions. And evidence ranging from quarrying, moving, dressing and building can be found all over the site. It's just conveniently left out of all the shots that we get of it. And something I find a little amusing is that the show has... Um, 
an owner of some mining company who says that if we would move these stones like this today, we would need to build roads and use, you know, heavy machinery. And the ancient alien proponents use this to make you go, well, that sounds like a lot of work. Seems like a hassle even for us. Now, the Inca did not have machines, but they did build ramps to move these stones. You know, the ramps are still there today. I mean, it's an abandoned construction site. I want to stress that these stones were not quarried as we think of today directly out of the mountain. The quarry site for Olantaytambo was some five to seven kilometers away, located at Cachiquanta, uh, some 400 meters above the valley floor. And this area is notorious for rock slides. And it seems as if the Inca used large boulders they found within the area. They then dressed them quite roughly and started to transport them. And hammerstones and other tools have been found. Well, fewer would like to see, but you know, enough to give us a good idea about the process. And both at the quarry and over at the, you know, fort, <laughs> that's really a temple. We have stones in different stages of building. And we even have in situ examples of the stones being transported. Lisbeth Bengtsson found one giant megalith in front of one of these ramps, ready to go up towards the temple and be put in place. Now, the megalith is estimated to weigh about 70 tons and um, was excavated by Bengtsson's team. And they found tree trunks beneath it. So in all likelihood, the Inca moved the stones using rollers, which is a really exciting find. And it's not really new. And Bengtsson was active in the in 1998, 1995, there somewhere. Now, none of this is making its way into the ancient alien narrative. Listen, for example, here on our friend Bill Barnes explaining how they really move these rocks. What you can't explain is the moving of 50 ton stones up the sheer face of a cliff to create the walls of the fortress. That in and of itself required more than cranes, more than lifts, more than scaffolds. It required something like an anti-gravitational device or a tractor beam to lift that much stone that high. And that's why people see this as an example of help given to an earthly civilization by ancient aliens. Well, Kachikata might be uphill, but it's just downhill for the most of the distance in when we start to look at um, the layout of the valley and the different sites. It's not until we get the stones over to uh, you know, the village of Olantaytambo where it starts to begin to go uphill again. And this section is an excellent example of how little these experts really know about these sites. For the most part, the research I've used is, is not new, actually. Protzean has been publishing since, well, at least the 80s, and Bengtsson's extensive excavation and study was in the 90s. And you must actively ignore and cherry-pick your evidence for this pseudoscientific narrative to really work. After this, the C-14 datings, Bengtsson's team performed on the material found beneath and between the boulders, Dating the fortress building, uh, you know, between 1450 to 1530, which would really be expected since we know that Inca ruler who raised the town started to rebuild it later. And this date is quite far from this ancient civilization Brian Forrester talked about. But we're still going here because now the show will bring up something strange. The narrator start to talk about the Temple of the Condor here at Olantaytambo. Well, I'm not a specialist in Inca culture, I can happily tell you that, but even I know that that location is at Machu Picchu. And I wonder why they decided to rename this place, except for a few travel blogs, who basically repeating Giorgio and Brian Forces claim they are the only one using it. And if you ask me, it's quite a red flag. Well, sorry. <laughs> A quick mention here, there's a book written on the structure by a group of civil engineers who in all the other parts of the book 
use the correct name for the site, but except in one place, they also use Temple of the Condor. Now, if you want to look up this site we talk about, it's called Inca Misana by everyone else, or in some cases referred to as the Water Temple. Inca Misana was built by Pachacuti, the leader who destroyed the original settlement, and this was supposed to become his vacation home. And within the complex, he set up some really intricate waterwork, hence the water temple name. And it's a beautiful crafted space and the Inca aqueduct system and water engineering is impressive. But they talk about something different. Instead, they are focusing on a niche on one of the mounting walls. And if you see this, you might think about, you know, the portal at Altarini close to Tivanaco. We covered this in episode 13. You know, where Jose Luis Delgado Mamani claimed that the Inca carved the niche and called it the gates of the gods. We, on the other hand, learned that this type of niche is usually called or referred to as Inca shares. And they can be found all over the Inca world. And if they would have taken a wider shot up over, you know, the wall of the six megalith, we would have seen a different version of the, this Inca share just beside it. Now, the niche isn't really brought up in the literature since it's not much of a mystery, as this alternative history type suggests. I want you to listen to Von Daniken and pay close attention to the false dilemma he sets up here. Prehistoric tools would never work. You see, Olaitambambo is mostly made out of andesite. To cut andesite, you need something which is harder than andesite. You could use a diamond, but there was no tool in Stone Age time to cut these rocks. So it must have been an extraterrestrial tool. Now, is andesite a hard rock? Well, yeah, it's a relatively hard rock, but note how he sets up that either they had diamond-tipped tools or they must have used alien technology. We get two choices when there are, in fact, a multitude of answers to this question in reality. This is an excellent example if you're unfamiliar with what a false dilemma is. Now, Brian Forrester, Giorgio Sukulos, and Von Daniken mainly focus on a crisscross pattern that can be found on the seat of this chair. And the details are really exquisite. It's so good that uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers wrote in a large study of them that this type of rock carving by ancient Inca craftsmen is the reason that myth has evolved over the decades as how they were created, adding a no, they were not made by extraterrestrials at the end of the passage. So what did they use if they didn't need lasers or diamond tipped tools? Well, here is one of those disappointing answers we are not entirely sure. Well, more research on the subject might lead us to uh, find some more fulfilling answers in the future. There have been experiments where people carved granite using flint tools. So they probably used a more realistic tool than, you know, suggested in the show. We have not yet found any good examples that we can link to this type of carving. If we were to use Daniken's logic about needing diamond tools, would not stone masonry in medieval time have been impossible? Iron is softer in comparison to diamonds, yet people were using metal tools to carve granite rocks and still use them today even. So, well, the case for alien interference over at Olantaytambo might have been a had exaggerated as we note. After the break we will head a little bit north in the Americas to Teotihuacan. Welcome back! Let's continue the hunt for evidence of ancient alien technology. We were taken to what was one at one point the largest city in maybe the whole Americas. At its height, Teotihuacan covered probably more than 30 square kilometers. At the peak, probably housed 150,000 inhabitants. The area was first settled around 600 BCE, but at first it 
It uh, consisted of a couple of scattered villages and smaller settlement. But we start to see a large influx of people around 100 to 150 BCE, mainly from the pre-classic city of Siosilco. Some believe Siosilco to be the first large city in Mesoamerica and might have housed up to 20,000 people at its height. And due to a volcanic eruption, Siosilco was abandoned. And there's an influx of people from other parts, mainly from the valleys south of Lake Texcoco. So this city grew quickly into something nobody had seen before in Mesoamerica. Now, why are we here? I'll present you with the narrative's claim and listen closely and see if you can spot something weird. According to scholars, the advanced design of Teotihuacan suggests that ancient builders had knowledge, not only of architecture, but of complex mathematical and astronomical sciences. From the air, the city's layout strangely resembles a computer circuit board with two large processor chips, the Sun Pyramid and the Moon Pyramid. Researchers have also found numerous and remarkable similarities to the Great Pyramids of Egypt. Did you notice anything standing out? It was the processor part, right? Yeah, I wondered where they would go with that, but it kind of just fizzes out. When they talk about the city's layout here, they don't discuss the whole town. It's a very small segment, in fact, and they mainly focus on the Avenue of the Dead, which include Pyramid of the Sun, the Pyramid of the Moon, and a lot of noble complexes and temples. I also wonder why they would need dual CPUs for their alien technology. Today, except for in some server-type motherboards, we rarely use or even need dual CPUs. And if we can create products with, you know, 64 cores and 128 threads, like, you know, AMD's Threadripper, imagine what a space-traveling civilization would use. I never thought Linus Tech Tips would be referenced in this show, but here we go. Linus do video explaining why dual CPUs never took off and show a couple of examples. None of them looks like this layout of this quarter in Teotihuacan, but I digress a little bit here. Now, when it comes to math, the Mayans were pretty sophisticated. They used a base 20 system and they were using the concept of zero, which was not allowed in, you know, Europe for quite some time due to the Catholic Church. And their numbers were represented by dots and lines, except zero, which was usually represented by a shell. One was written as one dot, and then you add another dot until you reach five. Five is symbolized by a line. So you have a bar and a dot to have six and then you add more dots and bars accordingly. On uh, 10 and 20 you increase the bars and then you just start over one, two, three, four, another bar, one, two, three, four, another bar. As you get to 20 we add a dot on the side of the numeral. So 20 would represent be represented by one dot and then another dot and then you start over. Now we don't have much of Maya mathematical text left but uh, Hector Calderon did in 1996 in his book La Ciencia Matemática de los Mayas reconstruct some of their methods in arithmetics. From the scraps preserved to our days, we see that the math used by the Mayans evolved over time. It's not as they one day just started to solve equations like the standard model Lagrarian or something like that. And please note that I'm not trying to diminish the accomplishment of the Mayans. I'm just trying to show you that their math should only be attributed to the people of Mesoamerica. Aliens, Atlantis or Lemuria is not needed to explain the Mayan accomplishments. Let's quickly look at these claims that the Pyramid of the Sun and Khufu are the same. And the show makes it sound like they are eerily similar, even using math to prove their similarity. The base perimeter of the Pyramid of the Sun is four pi times its height. In Giza, it's two times pi its height. Essentially, the Pyramid of the Sun is exactly half as tall as the Pyramid of Giza. Now, I'm not a great mathematician, but even I reacted to this math. 
The Pyramid of the Sun is not a square building. Its sides are 720 and 760 feet or uh, 220 by 230 meters. For simplicity, we can use uh, the show's measurements of, you know, round it to 750 feet. The height of the pyramid is 66 meter or 216 feet. So let's try Sucula's equation. So we write 4 pi times 216. So basically we have 4 times 314, 15, 9 times 216, which equals 1345.454444. Now this is not close to the base perimeter. Using the show's numbers, the base would be equal to roughly 3000 feet. Now, Khufu's pyramid fares a bit better. It's still not an exact ma match with Georgius' mouth, but if we round it up, you know, look between the fingers a little bit, we can make it fit a bit more realistic than, you know, Pyramid of the Sun. And to be honest, it's not Georgius who thought this up. It was actually Zachariah Sitchin who uh, is the, you know, origin of this idea in his books uh, The Lost Realms. And even if we find a few similarities and alternative history and alien proponents are quite good at pointing out what's similar, they're usually leaving out all the differences. For example, the Pyramid of the Sun has an angle of 32 degrees, Khufu has 52 degrees, they have a different volume, 1.2 million cubic meters versus 2.6 million cubic meters. One building functioned as a temple, while the other was intended to work only as a grave. One building was designed to be climbed, the other was not designed to be climbed. They were built more than 2000 years apart with different materials and different methods. We could look at almost anything and find some similarities if we are creative enough, but we should also remember to evaluate the differences. In this case, they are more different than similar. And as we saw, the similarities are only there if we you know, start to cheat and round the numbers up and down. That there is this much differences would be expected if two different civilizations constructed this independently. We also have a repetition of the claim that the pyramids of both these sites line up with Orion's belt. This is something we in the past have concluded only to be true if we rearrange the site's design. Something Buval and Hancock leave out of their book The Message of the Swings. And since we have gone into these claims on multiple occasions in the past, I will gloss it over here. So far, their claim about Teotihuacan haven't really matched up to what we know about the site. But could the following claim be what we have been looking for all this time? We're told that there is an extensive use of a mica embedded in numerous structures. This is followed up with that mica can only be found in Brazil more than 3000 miles away. And this is simply not true. The mica we find at Teotihuacan is most likely from Waxa, but just by the Pacific coast. I'm not sure exactly where they got the 3000 number from they are most likely building on a claim from graham hancock who wrote in his book fingerprints of the gods in 1996 and he wrote belonging to a type which occurs only in brazil some 2000 miles away and then gives two sources for this sitching the lost realms we see this repeated here again and Encyclopedia Britannica that were printed in 1991. Now, he references the Encyclopedia quite strange, but from what I figure, it's probably an excerpt from volume 8 on page 90. The issue with the Encyclopedia Britannica, especially in 1991, is that it came in two editions, a 32-volume set and a 15-volume set. And he doesn't really specify which one he used. But uh, I looked through The Lost Realms by Sitchin and he doesn't mention the Micah's origin at all. So either he got this from the old-timey Wikipedia or uh, origin might be... Uh, 
from Hancock himself. Also, if there's any jungle listeners out there, yes, we used to have large volumes of books instead of, you know, Wikipedia. And it's correct that we have some mica spread across the city with two more significant deposits. Proponents of aliens and alternative history claim these to be what they refer to as the Mica Temple and the Pyramid of the Sun. The Mica Temple is among archaeologists more known as the Viking Group. This is due to a grant from the American Viking Foundation, today more known as Vennergren Foundation. And this work le- was led by uh, Pedro Armillas and Jose Perez between 1942 and 1944 and was an apartment compound for a noble family. So it was within this complex we found this deposit under the, the floor basically. And some depiction of it is that it actually was the floor but um, others claim it was a larger concentrated deposit. Now, the second location is claimed to have been in the Pyramid of the Sun. And this idea comes from Peter Tompkins, a journalist turned New Age writer. And he claims in Mysteries of the Mexican Pyramids on page 202 that uh, Leopold Beatrice was told about an undocumented find of mica within the pyramid. And the mica was then lost or carried away. According to Tompkins, Graham Hancock repeats these ideas, but then uh, accuses Beatrice of selling the find due to the immense value of mica. But the second location is still preserved in the Sala complex. This is uh, another palatial building in the area. So both of these deposits was found in buildings tied to noble and wealthy families. It can have been part of floor decoration or maybe stored to sell for other reason. Now within the show, they all just talk about the electrical properties, the heat resistance and whatnot of mica, but these were not important to the Mayans. Most of the mica we find is within art, especially in the eyes of statues and in the Mayan makeup and in what Mayans used as mirrors. And what is left out that mica was used as a pigment in cave paintings during the Paleolithic era already. It's a pretty mundane material in many ancient civilizations. For example, the Tiva people in North America used it to make their ceramic vessel glister a bit extra. In Pakistan, it was added to clothing, especially for women. And in Russia, mica was used as uh, instead of glass in, you know, windows for houses where Tompkins uh, got his claim about the mica and the location all of that within the pyramid of the sun is unclear he just claims it was unpublished who told him about it never shows up in his reference or within his texts so it seems as mica isn't as unusual that we're led to believe within the episode. And even if the Viking and Sala deposits are significant, we don't need these fantastic claims to explain them. And it's also important to note that we're never presented with these mundane explanations within the show. Conversely, they are pretty clear that the only possible reason why they would do this is because Somehow it was part of some technology. And we're told that Mike is part, you know, about part of NASA's uh, spacecraft. And maybe the people of Teotihuacan used it to pr- protect themselves from spacecrafts taking off. Or that Mike was used as capacitors in the pyramids to offer, you know, wireless charging to the space aliens. So did ancient aliens influence the construction of this fantastic city? Now, when we look at the evidence, it's simply not there. I'm really confident to say, no, aliens had nothing to do with this site. But the show must go on, as they say. So join me as we travel over to India, located in the modern state of Karnataka in central India, lays the ruins of what once was one of the largest cities on earth. Vijayanagara was the capital of the Vijayanagara Empire, 
and covered some 650 square kilometers at its height. But why are we here? Well, these ruins might be the work of alien construction. Let us have David Children set the tone for this section. Vijayanagara is said to have been built in the 14th century uh, AD. However, there's a lot of evidence to show that it's a much older city. And in fact, uh, Hindu legends say that the ancient king Rama met with his monkey god friend Hanuman there at a cave at Vijayanagara. And this would put this city back many thousands of years. Now what Childress claim here is not wrong, but it's truth with a bit of modification. Vijayanagara is in an arid area, which was true even back in the Paleolithic era when it started to be settled. Of course, it was lusher around the Tungabara River, but this river was never navigable and was quite prone to flooding. And in the beginning, it was usually smaller, semi-movable settlements across this area. But this changed around 1000 BCE. And it's when we start to see larger villages develop. And as time goes into a more historical era, we begin to see small kingdoms grow. And usually set to 1336 CE, the foundation of Vijayanagara begins and an empire is born. At this point in time, we see a massive influx of people and the city grows from its humble beginnings. But we don't really discuss this aspect or, you know, the site's history. The show will mainly focus on the religious center called Hampi. As for King Rama, yes, he was a king, but he was also the seventh avatar of Vishnu. Rama met the god Hanuman, a monkey-looking deity in a place called Kishkinda. Now, in popular culture, well, today... This semi-mythical place is usually believed to be located close to the Tungabarada river and the location of Hampi. But as far I can tell, it's not really part of the founding myth about the site. We're going to leave the city for a while to talk about a type of architecture special for India, Vastu Shastra. Here we get into a little issue. Indian culture is often hijacked by, you know, white New Age people. And Vastri Shastra seems to have gone the same fate as Feng Shui and other similar traditions from the East, you know, by Westerners. And listening to how the show explains Vastri Shastra, we hear common keywords from the New Age movement that this practice includes harmony, energies, cosmos, and, you know, consciousness of earth and all of that. Vastu Shastra originates in the Hindu religion and its creation is often attributed to the craftsman god Vishvakarma. Around 600 CE we see the earliest known Sanskrit texts circulate on constructing temples according to these type of ideas and it grows from there to include palaces and, well, even towns. And the city of Janipur is built according to the idea within this tradition. But under the British colonial rule, the use of Vastu Shastra waned and has recently seen a kind of rebirth. But I think it goes without saying that the idea doesn't really have any scientific anchor. And the Federation of Indian Rationalist Associations have been highlighting that this is basically pseudoscience today. While the style guide might make beautiful temples and all of that, it won't really change any cosmic energy in any measurable ways. I mean, architecture is more about taste, less energies. (laughs) The tradition has no logical connection to create some balance between Earth or some unspecified energy, except what you as an observer might feel yourself. Now, the point we are being served here is that the site is again much older and constructed by gods themselves. So the claim here is more or less uh, repeated from Olantaytambo, 
that we saw in the beginning, but it's the same issue. While the site do have an earlier history, it's not during this time we see the construction of the building they reference today. But the ancient alien theorist needs to move the date back to do the alien. So the alien construction work. You don't really believe that aliens come down in the 14th century and built giant stuff and nobody, you know, talked about it. <laughs> and do you remember Viamanka Shastra? Now, this was a book created by G.R. Yosher, who claimed that this was an ancient text that was conveniently channeled to him in 1952. We have discussed this before, but within this text, we have this idea about Vimanas as some sort of steampunk spaceship. And it's somewhat referenced in the show, but a little bit more low-key than we saw in the earlier first season when this was brought up. But what we end up with is that this city is some sort of ancient spaceport. Yet, the preferred narrative from the alienist doesn't really fit the current understanding of the city and the architectural principles mentioned. Or, well, not without rewriting the history more or less completely. And sure, they try to do it this, but without the evidence to back it up, we will revert these changes for now. Now, the case for Alien Engineer does not look too well, to be honest, and after the break... We will examine if flipping an image of Ramses II will turn out to be the smoking gun. And if a small island in the Mediterranean used trains more than 5,000 years ago. Welcome back. While we were gone, our surroundings shifted, and we're now standing within the temple complex of Karnak in Egypt. What probably was the pride of Thebes is a massive temple complex, known to the ancient Egyptians as Ipet Isut, or the most select of places. The complex was expanded by numerous pharaohs over time. The main temple was dedicated to Amun and the Theban triad, which include Amun, Mut and uh, Khonsu. But as time went by, other temples and gods were incorporated. And just like tourists today, we could spend an entire day walking around this large temple area. But why are we here? Well, for two reasons. Obelisks and a sculpture of Ramses II. So we are going to keep it simple and start with the obelisks here. The obelisk is carved with the same inscriptions on four sides and they're all exactly the same and they're beautifully cut and articulated hieroglyphs into this red granite stone. I have to say obelisks are impressive and beautiful things. Standing in front of one of them really makes you feel small. But we have two claims to deal with. That the sides are precisely identical and the carvings have rotating tool marks within them. Let's start with the identical sides. This claim is rather silly in a sense since they are obviously not identical in the carvings on all four sides. And the show does not really help Childress by showing, you know, an obelisk shot from, so two sides are visible simultaneously. And, uh, you know, both these sides have different hieroglyphs and they put it on screen as he speaks. I'm, I'm curious how we came to this idea or why, why someone used this space to repeat the same sentence over and over again. That would be a wasted space for bragging. And the Egyptian pharaohs loved to brag. Take, for example, the obelisk set up by Hatshepsut at Karnak. Usually, obelisks are set up in pairs, and Hatshepsut, of course, did the same. This was so you could set them at an entrance at the temple and, you know, have symmetry. Even if we have, you know, some example of single obelisks, they never become popular to erect. Hatshepsut erected four obelisks at the Karnak temple, but only two have survived in place today. In the beginning, the obelisk was also gilded, making them even more impressive on the ones that we have preserved. 
is written on the western and eastern faces as follow. Horus, mighty Cass, two ladies flourishing in years, golden Horus, divine of diadems, king of upper and lower Egypt, lord of the two lands, Maatkare, she made as her monument to her father Amun, lord of the thrones of the two lands, they erecting to him two great obelisks at the august gateway, Amun, great of majesty, made with fine gold, they illuminate the two lands like the sun disk, never was the like made since the beginning of the world, made for him by the son of Re, Hatshepsut Nemeret Amun, given life like Re, eternally. Horus, mighty of Kaas, king of upper and lower Egypt, Atkare, beloved of Amun-Re. Her majesty recorded the name of the father upon this enduring monument, because favor was shown to the king of upper and lower Egypt, Akperkare, by the majesty of this god. These two great obelisks were erected by her majesty for the first time. For it was spoken by the Lord of the Gods, your father, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Akeperkare, gave orders to erect obelisks. Your majesty shall multiply monuments and live forever. Now, as you note, these texts are pretty bold in their statements. Hatshepsut claimed full credit for creating them and also claiming they were the greatest ever built. Trump is put to shame <laughs> with this type of wording. The old pharaohs loved to use these phrases, even if their monument was literally tiny, tiny examples in the shadows of their greater ancestors. But note that we have similar start to the text. Maybe it's there he got the idea, but well, we can at least put that claim to rest here. So let's move over to the tool marks and cut that can't be from stone or copper tools. The issues here for Arland Andrew is that, well, we have carvings in different stages of completeness. For example, we have a granite column for the temple of Harishef in Heracleopolis with multiple signs not fully completed yet. In the beginning, these signs look rough and you can clearly see the tool marks both in and around the characters. But when they reach about 2.5 centimeter, one inch, they start to polish with a stone designs and we get these straight lines that we are familiar with. If uh, some routing machines were used, we would would not see this type of tool marks within the process. And the rotating effects could easily be from the polishing stones and sand that they use to make it smooth and nice. But since they don't name the monument where these, you know, routing tool marks is found, it's tricky to figure out what happened. So the toolkit of the Egyptian workers fit quite well with the evidence we have. Why else would we have evidence of a process, you know, so visible? It's not a single occurrence either. It's something we see in other unfinished locations. And during all of this, we are joined by Christopher Dunn, author of Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt. He claims that the Egyptian created things to a precision of thousands of an inch or even more. I'm not sure where he get this details but that's that's simply not true as evidence done is presenting a picture of a statue in Karnak that depicts Ramses II or Ramses the Great as he's also known as and the statue depicts the head of Ramses probably more once upon a time but you know it was left and is from a front perspective and the claim is that the sculpture is so precise that you can flip the picture and put it over the original and it will align just perfectly. Of course, I went online from the similar image and tried this myself. Why? While the mouth, eyes, nose and, you know, some facial features do line out perfectly, the outline of the face and ears and, you know, other things were a bit off. But I wasn't happy with just one example. Now, I also tried Nefertiti and uh, Amenhotep III and 
other royals from the new kingdom. And they lined up and inverted again certain aspects, not the whole face, for example. And this is not due to you know advanced routing machinery, but more due to the style of ancient Egypt. Their their art is lovely, but it's more of a paint by number thing. It was highly stylized and basically after a grid it was meant to look the same and even Hatshepsut was depicted just as all the other pharaoh with the false beard and all. Egyptian art was not meant to be realistic it was supposed to look like it always had in a sense. It changed a little bit towards the new kingdom and especially during you know the Greek ruling of it but um, art wasn't meant to change it was to freeze the gold in a particular state in time but Dunn suggests they use something similar to a routing machines and show an aluminum face created with a metal router machine and the claim Dunn claims that the tool marks left on these are identical to each other and sometimes I guess you see what you want to see we're faced with Another false dilemma from David Childress here too. They allegedly did not have electricity, power tools. Supposedly they didn't have diamond saws. But yet they're doing things that would require precision work, precision tools. So where did they get those things? How could they have had these advanced machining tools that we've only just acquired ourselves today in our civilization? So one answer would have to be they've gotten it from ancient aliens. Precision work? Yeah, maybe. But they had rulers, carpenters, squares, and, you know, trained professionals. I, I'm pretty sure that a skilled craftsman today could create a duplicate bit, you know, on the chisels. So again, we have more answer to the question they state within ancient aliens here. And again, we're leaving this area without, you know, good evidence of alien visitation. I would say, you know, there's no evidence at all at this site. But uh, yeah, let's see if moving over to our final destination might solve this. Malta. A small cluster of islands just south of Sicily. If you're unfamiliar with Malta, it's a small nation in the Mediterranean consisting of three. Now, Flanagan is new to the show, but not new in pseudoscientific circles. He's authored a book named Pyramid Power back in 1975 that was followed up with, more, with four sequels. And he is in the show titled PhD and uh, referred to as Dr. Patrick Flanagan TM on his website. But his alma mater is nowhere to be found on his web pages. And after some searching, it seemed as it was either Medicina Alternativa or the Open International University for Complementary Medicines. Both have clear signs of being diploma meals. And I reached out to the estate or Patrick Flanagan's library. He passed away back in 2019. The, the library has his works and they kindly answered my question regarding Flanagan's alma mater. And it turns out that he has an MD from Medicina Alternativa. That's Alternative Medicine School based in Singapore. You're free to put whatever value in the title as you want but what we get here from patrick is basically a thick word salad optical accuracy isn't a term used in the literature and the definition is unclear because it depends on where and when it's used it's it's often about quality control by just looking at something I've been to several of the temples in Malta and I highly recommend visiting them if you can and thinking about it. I've been at three or five of the locations in this episode. Can you guess what other two I've been at? Well, at least these are marvels, but the construction is almost the opposite of a mystery. Now, with the help of imported flint and obsidian, the primary quarried two, they primarily quarried two types of limestone 
coralline and lobigernia. They most likely used wooden levers and wedges to break off blocks using natural fault lines in the stones. And when a block of the desired size was broken off, it was rolled on rollers to the site. On location, they used stone balls to get the blocks to their final destination. And a few of these stone spheres have been found in situ at the temple location. And they used the, the stones because you have better movement is the idea you know you can push them forward backwards side to side and to get the stone on the top of the others they built ramps out of dirt that they later dismantled and it's impressive that these early settlers of malta was able to do this with well such simple means and build these great monuments yet they show deems it unlikely and wonder if there was a railway maybe on the island to facilitate the transport of the megalith. On Malta there's something usually referred to as cart ruts. And these look like two parallel tracks in the limestone. And it looks like it was made by cart over a long long time. And the most likely explanation is also that it's from actual cart wheels. While there is a discussion on exactly when and how they were formed, we can rule out a few things the show mentioned, such as they, they are not 10,000 years old, and they are not all identical in size and width, and most of them are V-shaped, so they start wider and become more narrow towards the bottom. And these tracks are usually deeper in places that slope compared to flat location. Now this would support the theory that the, car, the ruts were started by carts. And then erosion from water and wind created this deep scar in this quite soft limestone. While there is some harder limestone on the island, much of it is very delicate and sensitive to erosion. A quite recent study just published last year have started to pick up the research on the Maltese cartrut, but the author Grocut mentioned a lot more research is needed to comprehensively understand these uh, cart marks. And lastly, we bring up the hypogeum. I was never inside this, unfortunately, since you have to get your tickets well in advance. This was pre-COVID even. So yeah, if you're going, check up ticket availability before you book everything else. Now, this underground temple is carved from the mountain to resemble the megalithic temples above. And the earliest date is close to 4000 BCE and within this complex is a room referred to as the oracle room. Now this room has some rather remarkable features. Frequencies within the 70 hertz and 114 hertz range will enhance and echo throughout the complex. According to the show is evidence that the people of Malta had access to acoustic levitation and could you know reshape matter with the help of this room but yeah it, it's simply not not true while acoustic archaeology within the complex has been limited it seems as a natural feature and not really man-made except that they shaped other areas within the complex it's just a happy coincidence that this nice little frequency uh, rumble can happen especially with male voices and drums, as uh, acoustic archaeologists have tried so far. But again, it's one of those things that need more research to be thoroughly understood in the future. And we're going to close the episode here. The evidence for aliens seems to have eluded us yet another time, but I hope you come back, because next episode, it's time for what some of you might have been waiting for since November. We will deal with Graham Hancock's ancient apocalypse. I know he lacks, you know, the alien visitor in most of his works, but since he has appeared on this show and uh, is known to spread some fringe idea, maybe we should at least look and test his uh, thesis. But till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friends. That's most beneficial. Tell your friends about the show, basically. And I also recommend that you're visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find some more info about me, the podcast, the episodes, 
And you can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or just hankering to write an email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. You will also find all the sources and resources used to create this podcast and often further reading suggestions so you can learn more about the subjects we bring up. Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro music is by the band called Traldsgruv who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 